this one faculty member was bullying me and no one else really did anything about it. Like male faculty who have sexually harassed students and are still teaching. Welcome to a special series, Behind the Researcher, where we uncover the remarkable experiences and untold stories of fellow researchers that shape their career pursuits. This is about the researcher and not the research. Hi everyone, I am thrilled to have with us today a very special guest, Dr. Ashley Ruber. Ashley is a trailblazer in the Leaving Academia movement. Having made the bold decision to depart from academia after completing her PhD and postdoc to pursue a career in UX research at Meta Labs. Her journey, which she shared on LinkedIn, resonated with so many of us who have felt trapped within the academic bubble. Ashley's perspective and experiences shed light on a common yet rarely discussed issue transcending geographic boundaries as she studied in the US while I studied in the UK. In this episode, we delve deeper into Ashley's story, exploring the challenges she faced and learn how she navigated the transition to a new career path. Before we get into that, let's start by checking in with Ashley. So Ashley, how did you start your day today? Um, well, I just, I just got back from doing some solo travel in South America, which is amazing. And so I, um, yeah, so I've been like kind of readjusting to, uh, you know, West, West Coast US time and actually, uh, working from home today and watching my friend's puppy. Oh. So, <laughs> uh, I went over oh, there. Oh, nice. That's a nice yeah. welcome back. A little, um, furry friend. Yes. I'm, I, I'm essentially his like godmother. Um, so I, I missed him oh. very much while I was gone. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know how it is, pets. <laughs> so during your PhD, we all face difficulties. That's a given. Like even asking if you had any difficulties would be actually a stupid question. For me, we all had some sort of difficulty. How did you overcome them? And this kind of leads me to my next question. What is your go-to habits or resources when you feel like you need to work on your mental fitness? So like books, podcasts, people, even a quote? Yeah. Um, so during my PhD and then also my postdoc, I think the thing I struggled with the most was imposter syndrome. And I came into, I think this happens to a lot of grad students and people who go through a PhD program. I came in being like super super confident. And then probably about year three, I realized how little I actually knew about anything and the the amount of knowledge that I still needed to learn. And then also starting to submit my papers for publication and getting like pretty critical peer reviews back. I started to really internalize like, I don't know anything and I'm not good enough and I'll never get a faculty job, which is what I my career goal for a really long time and it took it took a while of like getting through grad school and then at like some point kind of later in my postdoc actually it was like after leaving academia when I really internalized that actually I'm like like very accomplished and bright and it's just like the nature of academia is just really critical and yeah the thing is like I won multiple dissertation awards and still felt like an imposter. Um, so it just, it's something that is really hard, but I think I've also been thinking about 
mental health for a while because I'm someone who like I'm I have an anxiety disorder. So I've actually been in therapy off and on for the past seven years. I actually just started seeing a new therapist last week. Um, so therapy has been really helpful for me, um, particularly like attachment based therapy and family systems therapy is the one that's really worked for me. I also, in terms of mental health, I find journaling to be really effective for me just to really kind of like learn more about myself and process the thoughts that I have that go on in my head. And then other things just include like exercising, like getting enough sleep, like eating enough, spending time with friends. And then I, I really like going out and dancing. I really like techno. (laughs) So I find that to be really like fun and cathartic and um, a good way to kind of like introspect and, you know, learn more about myself, like on the dance floor. So those are my like go-to ways to like manage my mental health these days. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like with your imposter syndrome in academia, it's the next level because everyone, they do suffer with a little imposter syndrome from time to time. But when you're put into a room with professors and everyone's at the top of their game and they're published and they're making groundbreaking research, you do feel it a little more. And therapy, it's taken a while for some cultures to get into therapy. There's so much taboo around it. Because when I speak to my American friends, it's actually fashionable to go be going to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> but here, I'm back home. It's not so fashionable. Yeah. It, there's a stigma towards it. So I'm all for therapy. I journal as well. Um, so I've listened to some of your other podcasts and your post. Yeah. And one thing. Yeah you had during academia was a good work-life balance. Like, you know when to switch off, no emails on the weekends. What is something else beside that that you're proud of during academia? Yeah, I think that's one of the big things. I think I, I know, I think I like, I ultimately did accomplish a lot. And I think there's, you know, this, this feeling that I had a little bit, and I know a lot of other people too, where, you're like leaving academia, you're leaving like this research program that you built and you feel like I failed. Like I'm a failure. I'm like walking away from this thing. But I think the framing that kind of like worked better for me was like I I published like 15 first author papers like when I was an academic and I won multiple awards. Like I actually like moved my little niche area, which is infant emotional development. I like moved the needle forward, like even just like a little bit with, you know, the reviews and the theories and the research, the empirical work that I put out there and to where, you know, someone can come and if they want to pick it up and like keep going where I left off, like they can do that. And I feel like just focusing more on like what I accomplished rather than, you know, oh, I could have done like so much more that was more useful in me just being like, you know, this chapter of my life is over. I did the best I could. I accomplished a lot and now I'm going to move on and do something else. Um, So I think really focusing on like what I did accomplish was useful in kind of like allowing myself to, to move on and like enter a different chapter of my life. Nice. Focus on the positives. So they say with respect to domestic violence and stuff, they say it takes a woman seven cycles of abuse to leave her abuser. As soon as I finished my PhD, I knew I had to get out. Um, I know you went on to doing a postdoc. 
So how many times did you feel or think of quitting and what kept pulling you back and what was your turning point? All right, that's it. I'm leaving academia. Yeah. Um, the first time I thought about quitting as in my fourth year of my PhD and I sat on a faculty search committee. So I actually saw the process from the other side and I saw, I think we had like 120 people or so applying for one job, which was, I was told low actually. And I saw the process of taking all of these amazing applicants, like super well qualified and trying to whittle it down to like three people we wanted to invite out to interview. And I saw people getting cut. You had CVs that were a lot better than mine at the time. And I just saw the decision-making process and how it wasn't necessarily... I mean, it's just really hard when you have all these like really qualified people to like pick one. Um, and I think once you get down to the short list of 20, you could truly pick any single one of them and they would do like a really good job. And so I just, I saw that process and just felt like, you know, I'm not... Based on the, the selection criteria we had at the, at the time was the initial screen was you needed to have like a certain number of first author publications. And I did not meet that criteria. <laughs> so I'm like, I wouldn't even make it to the shortlist in this particular case. And so, so yeah, so I, at that point, started exploring like other options. I was in Seattle at the time. I had a lot of friends there. I loved Seattle. I really wanted to stay. And then obviously, if you like pursue an academic career, you don't have any choice or much choice over where you live. So I started looking into user research, which is what I do now, um, back when I was a grad student and then wasn't like convinced at the time that's what I wanted to do. I ultimately applied to one postdoctoral fellowship and I got it. Um, and I was told at the time that, you know, there was 30 applications for one spot. Like mine was one of the best applications I had seen in like the history of the program. And I was like, definitely going to like get a faculty job at a top 20 university and just like all of these things where it felt like, okay, well, I should, I should like write this out a little bit more. But I told myself at the time, which was in 2019, <laughs> that I was going to, I was like three years of the postdoc, I'm not going to be a postdoc forever. And then we'll see what happens. And then I'll move on. And then COVID happened. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like all my research was like, went out the window and like the job market collapsed. And then all of a sudden, we were starting my third year of my postdoc. I had kind of ignored the initial promise I made to myself and was applying to more funding. I was going to do a fourth or fifth year of a postdoc. But then I just really, as I you know, thought would happen, got really, really tired of being a postdoc, got really tired of kicking the can down the road, like waiting for my life to start. I was tired. I like really wanted to like choose where I lived and buy a house and all of that. So I was, and I went on the job market, like, not, I didn't apply to that many places, but I didn't get any interviews. And that was really like, it was really hard for me because my CV, like if you look at my CV, my CV is like really good. <laughs> and I was just, it felt real. it just felt really awful. And I knew that like academic hiring is not merit-based, but even so it's still like really hurt. And then I unfortunately was like bullied by another tenured faculty member in my department. And that was kind of the last straw for me, just seeing how kind of like, what is Lenny, like, you like die a hero or see yourself or like live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And that's kind of how it felt like if I continued to like, be on this academic path, like, what would I have to do to get tenure? Like, who would I have to step over? And then once I got tenure, like, what kind of behavior would I condone from other tenured faculty? Because you're like stuck with these people, right? And I just saw how 
this one faculty member was bullying me and no one else really did anything about it. Everyone was just, well, you should just apologize to them. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Like, why are you allowing this person to be mean to me? Um, and it just felt like I just didn't want to be in that environment anymore where there's no, with like the power structures and like no accountability and all of that. And so I just decided to like move on. And that, that was like the last straw for me. Um, I think maybe if that didn't happen, like maybe I would have stuck it out a little bit longer, but I was just really tired. And I told myself three years and gave myself three years and then I moved on. Yeah, I could definitely relate because during my PhD, when I asked for help, I didn't get the help that I need. And one of the response was, this is how it's always done. You have to love it and take it as it is. And I was like, no. So that's why I want to try to change things now. And yeah. the thing is, they don't prepare us to leave academia at all. Nope. Because <laughs> according to the statistics, it's like 50% of doctoral students, they drop all from the program before graduating. And this is the first and second year. Mm -hmm. And when they do graduate, for the ones that do graduate, only 6 to 8% stay in academia. So there's 92 to 94% leaving and they don't prepare us. Yeah. For me, they told us, yeah, after your PhD, postdoc, then lecturing. And that's what they prepared us for. Nothing outside. And I didn't like it. Yeah. So what is one of your pivotal takeaway you think that academia could do to address this toxicness? Yeah, I've, I've thought about this a lot. I think, I mean, part of the reason why there hasn't been much change is that there's still so many people who are applying for jobs. And I think, you know, one thing that's really prompted like anything to change with the postdoc situation is people are really struggling to find postdocs right now. And so that's kind of prompted the NIH to think about, you know, what if we increase postdoctoral salaries? And that's the problem with like, uh, there's just, there's still like hundreds of people applying for faculty positions that are like not well paying and that are like, and there's too many people who are currently like opting into the system. And so I think like the only way that, that things are going to change is if people start opting out like in mass. And then it's just a supply and demand situation. Like while the demand is really high, like there's no incentive for anything to change. I think there's also some, I mean, there's obviously like issues with tenure and that tenure obviously protects like in, in like the most ideal sense, it protects academic freedom and allows people to explore like more risky research, for example. But unfortunately, it also has the effect of protecting people who, if they were in any other job, would be fired. Like they would have, they would go to HR and they would be fired. And, you know, we, you've like seen this, um, I mean, there's, there's been multiple examples now of like faculty, ma like male faculty who have sexually harassed students and are still teaching. Like they have not been fired um, because they have tenure. And so unfortunately, and I mean, that's an extreme example, but there's also so many other examples of like just pretty toxic faculty um, who they will always have a job and there's no accountability. So I think like tenure, unfortunately, the way the current system is, it's just like, it's really hard to have like any accountability for faculty. So yeah, so th those are my thoughts. I'm someone who like really deeply cared and really tried to 
make changes. Like while I was a grad student, while I was a postdoc, I was chair of like diversity inclusion committees and like graduate action committees and would do climate surveys and be like, here's the needs of the grad students and the postdocs, like here's changes we wanted to see. And there's just so much resistance from like all of the university admins to making any of these changes. So yeah, I think like there's just so little incentive to change unless unfortunately like more people like me (laughs) decide that they just don't want to play the game anymore and leave. Exactly. Yeah, because... I decided I don't want to play that game, but I also started to make some noise mm-hmm. outside academia, call them out. Yeah, they really have to shake up and change up yeah. the core system. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I mean, systemic, systemic change is super, it's super hard. Um, and I mean, and you see this not just in academia, but like at other um like institutional racism, for example, like that's just, it's really hard when it's, it's like a feature of the system, you know, it's the same way, like the polish and perish mentality, like until we change the incentive structure for tenure, like there's no, like people are just going to keep like churning out publication after publication and having to step over people because like first authorship is like the most important thing. And yeah, it's like until we change the incentive structures, there's just no, I don't know. I just, I, and I've seen so many like really good intention people you're like, I'm going to change things, I have to play the game because they want to contend here. And then they like, it's, it's really, it's really hard. And I saw that that would, I didn't believe that I would be immune from that. If I stayed in academia, I could see myself having to play the game if I wanted to like get tenure or like get a job. And it's just, um, it's not like the kindest, it's not the kindest career to be in for sure. Yeah, exactly. They, I think they place a value on things that don't really matter. For like publication and impact factor, mm-hmm. it, it really does mess with people's mental health because I've seen academics commit suicide because they didn't get a grant. So it is frightening and heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah. But on the flip side of the coin, there's its pros and its cons. Mm-hmm. What is one thing you miss about academia that you don't get with the industry? Um, I don't really miss anything. <laughs> academia. Um, I guess like. Yeah, maybe I can like try to play devil's advocate. I guess like I I find so I I studied infant emotional development and emotion perception, and now I do research on tech in virtual reality and augmented reality. And so I find that in terms of having like a really deep investment in the specific topic that I'm studying, like I don't have that in my current job, which I don't think is necessarily like a bad thing. But it, it feels more kind of like a job rather than like a really personal like part of my identity, which I think has ultimately been good for me. But I think that is the thing that keeps people in academia is this really deep interest and investment in their like specific topic area, which you probably will not find outside of academia in most cases, by and large. Like the, there are jobs I could take that look at early childhood development from like a research perspective and like do social and emotional learning programs and things like that. But studying the specific research questions that I was studying, it's not something that I, I will ever like find outside of academia. And I think that's okay. And I, but that's like potentially the only thing that I miss, but I don't miss it enough to where like, when I was leaving my postdoc, I was, I had started writing a review paper and I had it about halfway done. This was about a year ago when I like left. 
And I kept thinking like, I'll come back and finish it. And I have it. So I don't miss it enough to like want to finish that paper. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, uh, so, so yeah, I don't actually miss that much about academia for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you tried. <laughs> I tried. I tried. I tried. Um, yeah. I tried. <laughs> yeah. I think some people say that they miss, I guess like I, I miss seeing some of my friends at conferences. Maybe that's like the only thing. Um, like I had, I had like a group, I had a group of friends where we like, we were at different universities, but we all say the same thing. So we were like kind of running into each other at conferences. And so I kind of like, I miss, I miss like those people. Um, but that's about it, I think. During my PhD, I had never had any publications. And even when I left, my thesis was up for publication. And I, w- I told my supervisor, you deal with that, I'm gone. I don't even yeah. want to be part of this anymore. I had enough. And yeah. that would have been my first, first, first author publication. And I had so much that yeah. I had enough. That was it. So what's one thing that you get to do now that you could have never done in academia? I just took two weeks and did a solo trip to South America, which I think like if I were in academia, like I could do that, but I think I would have felt like super guilty about taking that much time off of work. And this was very much a case where, yeah, I like, I told my manager that I was doing this and I was like, yeah, I'm thinking about like maybe working at some point. And he was like, just take the two weeks off. Like you don't need to work. Like we'll be fine. And I was like, great. <laughs> um, that sounds great. And I, and I, and people, yeah, I, it was, it was really nice to just not, <laughs> it's been really nice to not think about work all of the time because I, like I mentioned before, I was really personally invested in my research and just like thought about it all of the time, which I, I didn't like necessarily mind, but I think it's also not doing that has freed up so much mental space for me to, you know, read books and hang out with my friends and like be really present. And I think I'm someone who for most of my life used work as a way to escape myself and like the fear and the anxiety that I felt and actually not working as much as I was working before has allowed me to just like really get to know myself and to like stop running away from myself and to heal and to feel more confident and secure in ways that I haven't been able to before. Um, so that's been, that's been really nice. And I think you can have like more collaborations in academia. I never really experienced that. I was the only grad student and like person in my lab for all of grad school, more or less. And then I did my postdoc in COVID. So I felt really, really isolated and siloed. And it really felt like I was the only person who like cared about the research I was doing. Like no one else actually cared that much. Um, it wasn't that important. And working at Meta, I'm like working with a really big team in a really big company. We're all working together towards the shared goal of like developing new tech. And like no one person can do this all on their own. We're like all collaborating towards a shared goal. And it feels like my work is much more impactful and collaborative than what I found in academia. And that's something that I really like too. Nice. Yeah. Because before... When I was in a PG, you can't switch off when you get home. Although you think, okay, five o'clock, my job ends. At seven o'clock, I'm still thinking of those cells in the lab. And now you get to read books 
and not publications the entire time because I feel guilty reading a book. Yeah. And it's nice that you feel a sense of belonging now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, with the books, I was someone who, I read, I used to read a lot of books. And then I think also just in academia, I just felt like all day I was shoving my head full of research papers. So the last thing I wanted to do to like unwind at the end of the day was read more. Um, and so I, what's been nice about my job is I don't, I don't do that. So now I, I'm like more okay. I like actually really enjoy, like, I don't have to look at a screen. I can like read a book, but yeah, it's something I just didn't really have any desire to do. And that's all I was doing some days was just like reading hundreds of research papers to like write a review paper. And I just didn't want to spend more time reading. Um, Yeah. You used to read before you went into academia, like books and stuff. Yeah, like as a child, I just read so many books. And then I feel like once I, yeah, really started, like I entered undergrad. And then I think as a sophomore is when I started doing research and just felt like I was reading all of the time for like my classes and my research. And then that's when my my reading really fell off. And like last week, I like I went to one of my favorite bookstores here and I bought like six books and I've read like four of them now. So this is just like, it's something I've really have loved for most of my life and something I really kind of put on the back burner to like be an academic. And it's something that now I'm like, I really have loved getting back into. Yeah, it's so nice to reconnect with that passion because I certainly felt it too. So how would your parents describe what you do for a living now? Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. So my, pa- my parents didn't go to college. So I, it's, um, so I think they have some idea of what I do. Um, I think they know, they know I work at Meta. Um, and yeah, like I'm, I'm doing research at Meta on virtual reality and like augmented reality, I think is probably, probably what they would what they would say. And I've, I've, de- I've described like some of the work that I'm doing. Um, but I think that's, that's like what they, what they would say. And that's usually when people ask me what I do, I usually say like, well, I, some people don't know what me- that meta is Facebook. So I usually, depending on who I'm talking to, I'm like, why well, am I researcher at meta, which is Facebook doing? And they're like, what do you study? And I'm like, I'm studying like AR and VR. Um, and then, and then if they seem, and then if they're like, or what kind of research do you do? Then I'm like, well, I do user experience. Because I feel like if you say, like, I'm a UX researcher, people have no idea what you're talking about. So I just, I just at this point resorted to saying, like, I'm a researcher. And then if people like want to dig in more specifically, then I'll like go into more detail about what I actually do. So. So you're not only a first gen PhD student, you're also a first gen college student. Yes. Yep. Because your parents didn't go, right, okay, okay. Because, yeah, my parents, they didn't go to college. Yeah. And if I was in your shoes, they'd just, yeah, she works on Facebook. They would just stop right there. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think, um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't clear to me for a while, for like a while that my parents like understood what I did as an academic. They came to my defense. Um, and I feel like I, I really tried to frame my, my dissertation defense in a way that I also had like a bunch of, um, I had a bunch of friends in chemical engineering who like came to my defense as well. So I feel like I was really trying to frame it in a way that like anyone could understand, even if they didn't have like any kind of psych background. 
it seemed like at least my chemical engineering friends like really understood what I was talking about. I don't know. I don't know if my parents did, but I, I think they like have some idea about like what I do, but um, yeah, neither one of them are, like I said, neither one of them went to college. They're academics. Like I'm, I'm the only, I'm the only PhD in my entire extended family and like no one else is in science or research, like in my entire extended family. So I'm very much like, having to explain very simply what I do to most of my family. Um, I feel the same because I'm like that black sheep in the family. Yeah. So what's one advice you would give to someone like a PhD student starting out their career or wanting to enter UX research? So I guess I would say it is a really uh, weird time to break into UX research. It was already hard before, but there's been I mean, a very, very publicly, a lot of layoffs and a lot of UX researchers have been impacted. So the market is really saturated right now with people who have been laid off from Meta and Google and Facebook and like Amazon and all of that, who are all looking for jobs and they have experience. So it's, it's hard for, I think it's hard right now for people to want to break in, you like want to break into the field. So my first my first point is like if you really like research and really want a research career, there are many other research careers that you can pursue, and so it may be worth checking those out. But if you've checked all of them out and you're like, no, UX is the thing for me, um, and you're still a PhD student, my biggest piece of advice is to do an internship. There's many summer internships, and there's also internships at various points over the course of the year. And you can also, I also have friends who are grad students who have taken like essentially full-time or like part-time positions as contractors at Meta. And so just getting experience in like any way as a UX researcher is the best thing that you can do. Um, And because that's the thing that keeps, that makes it hard for people to break into the field is you have all this academic research experience, but you really, to get a lot of jobs, you really need to have some UX experience unless it's a true entry-level position. Um, And then with that said, I would also get on LinkedIn, which I think like a lot of academics are like pretty averse to LinkedIn. I was one of those people for a really long time until like two months ago. And yeah, I think it's a really amazing resource to like connect, yeah, to like connect with people. And I think there's, there's also just like been a really big appetite for, I think the content that I post on LinkedIn, I went from 1000 to 20,000 followers in like two months. It was really wild. Um, (laughs) So I think like to the extent that you can be like kind of actively engaged in LinkedIn and that's a way to network with people, um, to make connections with uh, companies and to get referrals and to find and apply for jobs and for recruiters to find you. And I would just, I would really like highly recommend getting on LinkedIn. And those are my big pieces of advice. Um, the other things that I always recommend beyond the professoriate has an amazing, is an amazing resource and they have a really good podcast that basically like any piece of advice I could give anybody about applying for non-academic jobs is in that podcast. And then if you're interested in UX specifically, I really like everything that Darren Hood puts out. He also has a really great podcast and a blog. Um, and I had been chatting with him actually about, I think at some point, I don't know if he's already put this out, but at some point soon, he was going to do some podcast episodes about PhDs who want to move into UX research. Um, and then there's also a you PhD to UXR Facebook group as well as a lot of good resources. But I think a big part of breaking into UX is 
appreciating that UX is a science and it is its own discipline, very much like psychology and sociology or like their own sciences and separate disciplines. Like UX is a science. It has a set of methods. It has a set of principles. And just like you had to learn, like I had to learn a lot about psychology to get my PhD in psychology. Like you need to teach yourself about UX in order to break into the field. So really understanding what the methods are, the terminology, and just like the process of doing UX and all of that. Um, and for me, I really liked, I really like reading books. So um, Darren Hood has a bunch of really good book recommendations on his blog. And so I, that was how I taught myself a lot. Um, but there's also like various other content that you can explore. I wouldn't necessarily like, I wouldn't pay for a boot camp. Um, boot camps vary in like their, their quality. Um, I think there are some out there that are okay. Again, Darren Hood on his blog also has recommendations for educational resources that he would recommend. And then ones that he like wouldn't recommend. So I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of content out there and some's better than others, but um, yeah. Yeah, those are my, those are always like my big pieces of advice for sure. That's amazing. I think I actually learned something. Oh, great. <laughs> so some more questions, more specifically about you. What occupation other than your own would you like to try? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. You know, I feel like in an alternate reality. Um, I was like really into computer programming when I was a freshman in high school. And also I had, I had taken like a Python course in when I was an undergrad and did really enjoyed it. And like actually did so well in my undergrad course where they invited me to be a tutor for that class in the future. And at that point I was really wanting to do an honors thesis in psychology and just didn't feel like I could commit my time to like doing this completely separate thing, but it was something that I really enjoyed. And I think if, I don't know, I, 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 I can imagine an alternate universe where I like really like dove into that. Um, and I still like, I program in R. Um, so I do all of my statistical analyses and data cleaning in R. So I get a little bit of that, but yeah, I find coding to be like really fun and I am in more of like a mixed methods position and UX tends to lean towards the more qualitative side of things. So it's the quant side isn't something that I do super often, but I've ended up kind of being the quant person on my team. So whenever there is a, like a more quant based project um, or something that requires a lot of data cleaning, I've typically offered to help because otherwise people, my team will do it manually in Excel. And that really like hurts my heart to see people doing data cleaning in Excel or data analysis in Excel. Like, it's just I'm like, please, please let me help you. So, um, I mean, as a child for a really long time, I wanted to be an astronaut. That was like my big, my big career goal when I was a child. Um, but so I think that would be at some point in my childhood, they like discontinued like the space program and that was sad, but yeah, so I think I've always really been interested in science in like one way or another. So probably some other like scientific career. So if salary wasn't an issue, would you go back into academia? I, I think I know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, the, and that's that's yeah, that's the thing is like um, yeah, I make so I make three times as much money as I did as a postdoc now and. But the thing is, I, f I didn't feel like I was necessarily like hurting for money because I was making 50 grand, but I was living in Madison, Wisconsin. So that was actually pretty livable. So salary wasn't like a big, it wasn't something that I really thought about when I was a postdoc. 
the things that really drove me out of academia were not related to salary at all. It was just, yeah, related to having no choice over where I lived. And then like some of the toxic power structures in academia and the work life balance and like all of all of these other things that I'd rather, (laughs) rather not deal with. So yeah, because I, I spoke to so many people in academia and it's like they never did it for the money in the first place. No. So what's your favorite productivity hack? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm a, I'm a really productive and like efficient person. And I feel like that's how I was able to accomplish as much as I did as an academic without working nights or weekends. Um, I think it's more about just being like really focused, like when you do work, because I think I'm, I was also someone who like, I'd struggle, I would struggle, I had struggled with depression and would have like pretty bad chronic fatigue to where there were days where I just like couldn't really work. And so I just learned how to be really efficient with the time that I did have. And as part, part of that, like I deleted social media off of my phone because I would find myself kind of like going and doing that to like avoid actually working um i don't i'm a big fan of like to-do lists and also with i had like multiple projects going on i really i had made all of these um kind of like google google sheets where i had like the different projects and like different stages that they were at and i like set self-imposed deadlines because that's something that was really hard for me in academia was there aren't really deadlines um so you really have to set them for yourself and be like no i'm gonna like I'm going to have a draft of this paper by the end of the month and really stick to that. Um, Because otherwise you can, I've seen, I've seen other people do it. Like they kick the can down the road, like, Oh, I'll do it next month, next month, next month. And then all of a sudden it's like, you've been working on this paper for two years and haven't submitted it yet. Yeah. I I think just like a lot of like project management rules to just be like mindful about like where you're at. And then I really like to do lists as well. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Self-accountability and self-discipline. You do have to learn that, have that in academia. Um, What do people misunderstand about you most? Yeah. I mean, I think it's being like a weird, I never really wanted to be an influencer, (laughs) like thought that I would be. It just kind of like, like all of a a sudden I have like 25,000 followers on Twitter and that's like not at all like what I expected and I think it's really easy and something I really struggled with is kind of being the target of a lot of criticism and hate and I think people have really people who don't know me like really misunderstand my intentions like my intentions are purely altruistic I don't do this for like the money or the like the fate like the weird twitter fame or like linkedin fame like that's not why i've continued to like post and like put out content it's because people have told me over and over again like how helpful it is and how much they appreciate it and like that makes me feel really good that i'm like helping people and i think like people people assume that you know because i work at meta that i'm just like really greedy and just like in it for the money and i've been kind of like accused of i don't know like recruiting people to work at the evil company that is meta um and i'm just like i'm just telling people like how to make a resume like i don't (laughs) if people like want to if people like people can do what they want and so i think people assume that i'm like in this for the money and like i i have started getting paid to do talks at universities but that's something that just kind of happened and i think it's also 
you're expected to do a lot of free labor in academia. And I think I'm someone who's really struggled with boundaries. And so I, I'm now trying to be like more protective over my own time and be like, hey, I would love to like give a talk, but can you pay me something to like give this talk? Because my time and my like experience, my perspective is worth something. But yeah, I think um, I think that's the thing that people have misunderstood about me. It's just my motives for like doing any of this, and it's really made me want to delete social media multiple times. And I actually I haven't been on it since I left for my trip like three weeks ago, and it's actually been really nice to like not be on it. And so I'm currently struggling and like really thinking about like how I want to use it moving forward because I think it's been really the way that I have been using it has not been like super healthy um, for me and I think I need to distance myself a bit from like giving myself so much to other people that I don't actually have like a time or space for myself. Yeah it can definitely get overwhelming. So a a small round of rapid fire questions. So it's either this or that. So real books or audio books? Oh, that's hard. Um, I really, oh, uh, I mean, I've been doing, I've been doing real books lately. Um, I think when I was in my postdoc, I would bike to work. And so I would listen to audiobooks then. Um, but I don't know. I think there's, there's something, I think that the academic in me really likes high, like underlining. I read a lot of self-help books and like pop psych books because that's just like who I am as a person. Um, and I really like the, the process of like underlining a book, like a physical book. So I, I feel more drawn to physical books lately. Okay. So tea or coffee? Um, I end up drinking a lot of coffee. <laughs> um, I, I really like, uh, I really like the, the ritual of like drinking coffee kind of more than the caffeine necessarily. Um, but, but yeah. And also I, I think I maybe like prefer the taste of coffee a little bit to tea as well, but I like both, yeah. but coffee, if I had to pick one. <laughs> um, cardio or resistance training? I feel like I haven't been very good at either of those lately. Or I haven't made t- I haven't made time for either lately. Um, uh, but I do again do like both. Um, I think I end up doing like cardio a bit more. Um, really like biking. I don't know. It's it's a nice way to like get exercise while also commuting to work. It's like easier for me to like bake into my day. Whereas doing resistance training, like I I live in an apartment complex, we have a really nice gym, and I like just have it feels more like I am I am having to go and do this thing. So I just like end up doing it less. I do yoga the most. I don't know if that counts as either cardio or resistance. It's like a l- maybe like a little bit of both. Yeah. But yoga as like a separate third category, I guess, is like really the thing that I feel more drawn to. Um, jeans or joggers? Jeans, but like more wide-legged. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I have a hard time finding pants that like fit me well, just based on my like body type. And so I feel, so in some ways I feel like more drawn to sweatpants, but I think having like baggier jeans um, has helped a lot. And so I feel like COVID really like ushered in a wave of like wide-legged pants being in style. So actually, I feel, I feel like I tend to gravitate more towards something that's like in the middle where it's more of like a flowy pant situation. Um, so yeah. So if in 150 years, science failed to save us all and all that is left is a book on your life, what would the title be? 
I've thought about this a lot, actually. <laughs> um, so I, I think Bloom is a good title. I really like flowers and I'm really someone who deeply values like personal growth. And I feel like that's been the theme for my entire life in terms of just like kind of all of the healing and the growing that I've had to do. And I think I've, I've grown like a lot as a person and people have told me like I've changed more than like any person they've ever met. Like I really do deeply value growth and feel very drawn to flowers. So that that's like the title. If I, and I really would love, I would love to write a book like one day if anyone's listening and they're like, give this person a book deal. Like I would love to write a book. Um, that sounds really fun. I really love writing. So, so yeah. Yeah. I do see it on your LinkedIn. You write really lovely pieces. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so what's next for Ashley Ruba? <sighs> That's, that's a great question. Um, I think like my, my career goal this year was to get a full-time position because I'm currently a contractor, but given all of the layoffs, I think I would be, I would be happy if my contract were extended for another year. Um, but I would getting a full-time position at like one of these big tech companies in UX research is something that I really would like to have. Um, I guess it doesn't have to be a big tech company, but I really enjoy working on hardware and like tech hardware specifically. So I would, I'd be open to like working on hardware, like somewhere else too. And then like personally, um, so I just moved back to Seattle after like leaving for my my postdoc and then I decided I really wanted to be back here. So I'm currently working on kind of like rebuilding my community of friends. And so like working on those relationships is really important to me. So I'm working toward my birthdays in May. So I'm like working on like having a birthday party, which feels like a really big deal for me. Um, someone who had like pretty intense social anxiety for like most of my life, the idea of having a birthday party feels like a really big step forward. <laughs> and I think just like continuing to grow as a person and to like build my network and to figure out like what makes me happy and to like do making those decisions and doing those things. Yeah. Those are like, like the big things. Nice. Just continue to bloom, evolve and navigate life. Yeah. <laughs> so that's wonderful. Yeah. Ashley, it was indeed refreshing speaking to you and getting to know more about you. Oh yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that's a wrap on another fantastic episode of The Diary of a Researcher. I'd like to extend a huge thanks to our amazing guest, Dr. Ashley Ruber, and for sharing her inspiring journey with us. Ashley's insight and experiences shed light on the realities of living academia and transitioning to a career in industry, and I'm sure our listeners will find her story both informative and empowering. You can also find more of her content on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. And finally, a special thank you to our listeners. Thanks for tuning in.